don't know whether you witnessed a tense situation which has been completely um, diffused by a sort of out-of-the-blue comment. The, the little girl who's being soundly told off by her dad and uh, says, but, but Daddy, you do love me, don't you? Or um, a tense mood in Parliament where everybody's at each other's throats and then someone makes a joke and everyone... Uh, and anyone laugh, everyone laughs. I remember in my, uh, in my 20s, a female friend of mine telling me she was um, very angrily telling off her boyfriend. And um, he, he looked at her and he just said, you know, you look even more beautiful when you're angry. <laughs> <laughs> now, if that's said wrong at the wrong moment, in the wrong way, it could be actually just fuel on the flames, can't it? But if it's the right moment, with the right timing, with the right intention, it can diffuse the sort of focused angst of a situation and just help us see something a little bit broader and bigger than the immediate argument we were in. And it seems to me that's exactly what um, God is doing in Job 38 and 39 and on beyond that. He makes one of these kind of out of the blue comments. God speaks, as Anna said, at uh, 38 chapter 1, um, where he hasn't spoken up to at uh, this moment. Um, Tim has already, with that superb little song, I was trying to, going to try and remember the, the, the rhymes, but I can't, um, given us an introduction to, uh, uh, to, to, the, to the book of Job. Job suffered terribly. He suffered innocently as well. And we know that because we were led into the courtroom, the throne room of heaven at the beginning, and we saw that actually, paradoxically, it was actually because of Job's righteousness that Job suffered. But Job doesn't know that. He is just plunged into agony, and he sets out agonizingly questioning God. As Tim again said, his friends turn up and they are no help because they've got this sort of rather simplistic, rigid theology. Despite the fact that they initially showed care for him, they say it must have been your fault. Um, Job, you just must examine yourself for your own sins and, uh, and work out why God has brought these terrible things on you. And they've completely missed the point And so uh, Job turns on them and points that out and exposes, in fact, that they're more interested in their own self-preservation, their own reputations, than they are really about Job. And so on for chapter after chapter after chapter goes Job's complaints. And we have seen, when we started looking at this series, of course these things are deeply pertinent to us. Because the person who never has some significant suffering or trial or difficulty in their life is pretty rare. And for some of us, our trials are extreme. And it's not surprising in those circumstances that like Job, we question God. Why did this happen to me? 
And so far as uh, Tim again said, we haven't had an answer. Well, we've had something of an answer behind the scenes, but Job has had no answer at all. And by uh, uh, the beginning of chapter 8, Job has completed his questioning, effectively rested his case. The friends have run out of answers to Job's questioning and have uh, sort of run down into silence. And it's at that point that God speaks. But it's really important to see God does not answer Job's questions. Job has challenged God to list his sins and so demonstrate why he's suffering justly and God declines to do that. We know God could have explained a little bit more of what was going on because we've seen it, but he doesn't even do that. Like us, in fact, Job, from beginning to end of the book, will be in the dark about what the real reasons for the events that had overtaken his life were. Instead, God, God sort of enters the conversation left field, like that, that little girl with her daddy, or the joke in a tense debate, or, or the boyfriend's expression of delight in his, his, his girlfriend. He breaks the stalemate by actually trying to help Job look at it from a different perspective. But it's not sweet, this. This is not endearing. This is not going to make everyone fall off their chair with laughing. Now, this is rather awesome, God's intervention. But nevertheless, it does break the deadlock. The Lord, chapter 38, spoke to Job out of the storm and said... Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. In these uh, left field comments that God then brings um, in, he fundamentally um, describes himself as the creator. That's what we want to see. Something of God's majestic character in his creation. And how that may help us come to terms with the fact that every single one of us will live with suffering that we don't really understand. First of all, God says, he is the creator who made all things good. Where were you, verse 4, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely no, you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Of course, it's poetic language. But, he, but his meaning is obvious. God's original intention and his original work of creation was a work of, of, of exuberant, wonderful joy. The morning stars sang. All the angels shouted for joy. In just a few hours, if Andy Murray wins at Wimbledon, there will be a shout such as that turf has never heard since the creation of the world. 
when there was a far greater, awesome shout that echoed throughout the whole of God's creation. The cry of joy of God's creation in being created. God created this creation, this universe, good. He says, there is evil in it, but fundamentally it is good. Indeed, says God, he sets a limit to evil in this world. Verse 8, who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I uh, fixed limits for it, set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. You see, the point here is that the sea for Job is a, is a great symbol of, of chaos, of of restless evil and God says I shut the sea behind doors I set limits for it I said this far you may come and no further every rising tide you know that has ever happened that stops and starts to go down again is a, is a witness of the limits that God has set on evil in his creation it does not rule over all things. And every dawn, says God, every, every morning when the sun rises, here you have another witness to, the, to, to God's commitment to bring evil to an end. Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? What an extraordinary image that is. As if the sunshine, when it rises, sort of grabs the, the earth like, uh, like some tablecloth and, and uh, shakes the, the wicked, the evil, the darkness, of course, off it, lays it out as a clean and fresh thing. Uh, but every morning, the sun does that. It defeats darkness. When the sun stops rising, says God, then you may believe that I have ceased in my commitment to vanquish evil. But every day that it does, you remember when that sun comes up. I am the God who sets a limit and an end to evil. God is the creator who knows his creation totally. Verse 16, he knows the depths of the sea. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse um, 17, he knows the world beyond death. Have you, have the gates of death been shown you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? You know there are people who have near-death experiences and they say that it's going into a bright light or whatever. Nobody's really clear um, what that's all about. It's probably more associated with the sort of uh, imminent breakdown of the brain than anything profoundly spiritual. But that, even if that is a glimpse of the beyond, that's the best we can do. 
God knows. God is sovereign even over death and knows what is through that door. Job doesn't. We don't. Do you know, says God, the whole earth, verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, he says, if you know all this. You know, to listen to some of the propaganda that is, is, is uh, put about these days, not by responsible scientists, but by others, that, that suggest that, that we do know everything, you know, you, you, would, uh, you would imagine that uh, this ancient document no longer has relevance. The, um, it was journalists who decided to call, call the Higgs boson, which has been discovered this week, the God particle. Scientists are profoundly embarrassed about it. Well, it's quite interesting to know another of the subatomic elements of the universe, but the God particle. It's on, the, on a par with Stephen Hawking's uh, portentous uh, claim at the end of um, a brief, brief history of time that man will one day know the mind of God. What rubbish! We haven't even come close to cataloguing the species on this planet, let alone plumbing the depths of the universe. Did you know, in the last year or so, a new species of monkey, a monkey, a big mammal, a new species of monkey has been found. Snub-nosed monkey, which sneezes when it rains, because its nostrils point up. How weird is that? Or a parasitic wasp was found, just within the last year, a parasitic wasp that lays... Its, uh, its eggs on um, uh, uh, parasitizes uh, uh, ants, laying its eggs in their body, its attack takes an average of 0.052 seconds. You can see it on YouTube if you want. Or uh, the world's first night-flowering orchid has been found. Within the last year, Nobody knows what pollinates it yet. And on the list goes. I mean, come on. We are still not in a very different place from Job. Do you know the vast expanses of the earth? He says to Job, and we have to say no. We don't. Even if we know a little bit more of the maths of the universe. It only reveals how much more there is still to know. But God knows these things. He created the fundamental laws of the universe. He created every species in the whole world. We are told that every star in the sky has a name from God's perspective. And he controls his whole universe. Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the, snow, of, the, of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? And so on and so forth. Do you know, have a guess. How much did it cost to cover a centre court at Wimbledon? 100 million pounds. Imagine what it would cost to uh, have equal control 
over the weather of Great Britain then. <laughs> we can perhaps control the environment with a lot of air conditioning and, uh, and, and movable roof of a little tennis court. God controls the weather of the whole world. That's what he's saying. Oh, more than that, though. And the stars. Can you bind, verse 31, the chains of the Pleiades or loosen Orion's belt? These are the constellations, yeah? Yeah? Can, 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 you, just, uh, can you just go up there and say, oh, Orion, your belt's a little bit uh, tight. Just, 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 just stretch those stars out there uh, a little way. Um, that, 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 that's what he's saying. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasoning, seasons or lead out the bear? You remember the, the great bear's another constellation with its cub. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Of course not. Remember Bruce Almighty um, uh, actually being given the power of God and uh, bringing the, the moon a bit closer to impress his girlfriend and then causing tidal waves and horror and disaster because he had no idea of the consequences of his control that he had. But God controls them. And over that, 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 that um, knowledge that he has and that control he has over his creation stands his incredible care for his creation. He cares for his creation as provider. Verse 39. Do you hunt the prey for the wild lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Who? Who? It is God. Great lions that seem to be able to look after themselves. I was hearing um, uh, this week... Um, uh, lion's Roar, it was on From Our Own Correspondent, I don't know whether you heard it. A lion's Roar, the, the uh, Kiswahili uh, speakers suggest that what the lion is saying is, Who owns this land? Me, me, me. But he doesn't, and he's absolutely helpless unless God provides him with his food. He cares for this world as a kind of midwife. 39 verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her form? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? Um, unlike modern midwives, perhaps God doesn't have one of those little dials that um, can work out when they're going to give birth. Um, perhaps he just does it um, uh, without that. But there he is, counting the months till they bear. They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labour pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. There is a life cycle of a, 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 a mountain goat that never sees a human being but has God the midwife and carer looking over it. 
And God is nature's liberator. Verse 5 of chapter 39. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I give it to the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. They... Excuse me. Two pages... It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any uh, green thing. Here is God, then, who sets his creation free and gives them extraordinary liberty. He, He loves to make things wild and uncontrollable. Will the wild ox, verse 9, consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the mountains behind you? Will it rely? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to the threshing floor? Answer, no, you can't. It is completely uncontrollable. He creates nature which to us is uncontrollable. But of course it is effortlessly in his hands. And he loves to make things that, that have have strengths but also have confusing weaknesses it seems verse 13 the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork she lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand unmindful that a foot may crush them that some wild animal may trample them she treats her young harshly as if they were not hers she cares not that her labour was in vain for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense yet When she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. What a confusing bird the ostrich is. And yet what a what a what what a what a a picture of, of of the ways in which God creates things. With some extraordinary strengths and some confusing weaknesses. Who knows why God didn't give her wisdom, why he enabled her to uh, 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 gave her the habit of not caring as much for her eggs as other birds but God does that's the way he made his creation and we could go on this is just just a a little flavour then of the Bible's extraordinary picture of the living God a God who made his, over, his universe out of the overflow of his joy. A universe which celebrated its creation from the beginning. A God who sets limits on evil and is dedicated to finally terminating evil. Every tide and every dawn reminds you of that. A God who loves to provide for animals that scientists only found last year, but God knew about them millennia ago. A God who in his wisdom builds some confusing things into his world, like ostriches. This is the God that we live under. Now we must be clear, two things that God is not saying. God is not saying, Job, if you only understood this world, you would realise there's no evil in it at all. 
that is a solution that some people have, uh, have tried to, uh, to give to this problem of evil. They have suggested that the problem of evil is only in our minds, is, is, is only in our limited understanding. Complete understanding would completely eliminate evil. In 1927, the uh, author Thornton Wilder wrote a, uh, a book entitled The Bridge of San Luis Rey, and he describes how a Catholic priest sets out to try to understand um, why, apparently meaninglessly, a bridge broke and killed a number of people. And he carefully tracks these people's lives and makes a case for each of their lives having come to its perfect conclusion on that day when they walked across the bridge and died. His books burned in the story, I'm glad to say, because it really does not fit with reality. The Bible never says evil is illusory. The Bible says evil is real. And there is pain even in the very heart of God over evil. And so we shouldn't see this speech as somehow saying, Job, if you saw it from my perspective, there would be nothing bad at all. That's not what God is saying here. And neither is God saying another thing that has been suggested, that, that um, Job, when you see all the complexity of this world, you realise that I simply can't control it. That's um, the argument of numbers of other books as they've wrestled with evil. And God is not saying this world is so complex it's uncontrollable. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Despite its extraordinary complexity, it is still under his sovereign hand. Evil exists, but God is in control. Now rather, what he's saying here is, Job, how on earth can you think that you can get full and complete answers to your questions? Yes, it's not inappropriate to agonise and to question and to, 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 to try to clarify what your real struggles are, as Job has done for 30 plus chapters. But in the end, Job, you're just going to have to realise that some things this side of eternity don't have final answers. Times you just have to learn to trust. And Job, there is tons in this world that gives you encouragement that I am ultimately a good God. You, 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 you walk down a country path and you see a dog rose in full bloom and your heart lifts because there you've detected something of my goodness. You lie on your back on a balmy August night. I'm still hoping for a balmy August. And, 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 and at that time of the year, the Perseids shower is coming. And you count the, the shooting stars, as I, I did as a teenager, and you, you know something of my majesty and greatness 
Job. You wake up early in the morning, uh, one March morning, and you, you hear, the, hear the blackbird just sitting outside your window, tuning itself up to get itself going for the dawn chorus that then will go throughout the year. And you know something of my beauty, Job. You have a world full of signs of me, and you will have to trust me for some of the mysteries. Everybody knows this world is full of mysteries. Will we ever find a grand unified theory of science? The evidence seems to be against it. Do, we don't even understand fully you know, how lightning is formed. One of the things is mentioned by God there. Scientists still argue about it. The Big Bang is confessed by uh, more honest sciences just to be a convenient black box at the beginning of the, their understanding of the universe, from where everything goes into such mysterious um, um, uh, uh, peculiarity that you can do anything to demonstrate how the universe existed. It's not really an answer. We just don't know. But God does. Sorry, those... Are the points we were looking at if you're interested but I want to take us on just to bring it together with just three commitments that I want to encourage you to have the first is that I think God is inviting us to learn to enjoy his creation there is a time to ask questions to ask theological questions and to study the Bible and we will learn a lot from that there is a time to wrestle in prayer but there is a time to acknowledge we won't get all the answers. But to go and tramp in the rain and just think that though it's been the wettest June for who knows how long, isn't it amazing how green the trees and the grass are? Greener than I can remember them in July. It's wonderful. And to contemplate the goodness of God. Jesus, it was not by accident, Jesus said, consider the flowers of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Think about sparrows that die without anyone noticing them. But your heavenly Father does. So on my lowest moments, I've, I've um, gone down to the river just there um, and uh, sat on the bank and thought, this river has been flowing past here for tens of thousands of years. And there have been innumerable people like me, troubled by the little trial of the moment. And they have come and they have gone. And that thing that they were worrying about was by no means the biggest thing in their life. The biggest thing in their life was that they were reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that they were assured because of that of an eternity um, which is unimaginably good. And their little troubles came and went and the river flowed Learn, as Jesus encourages us to, to enjoy nature and appreciate what it speaks to us of God.
Learn, as I've already said, to be reconciled to mystery. If you want to understand everything, well, I don't know where you can go. But certainly not to a church. In the end, God says, trust me. And that is what Job seems to learn to do. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then again in chapter 42. Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge? I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. That is how we have to live. Well, we live with a trustworthy God. A good God who revealed his trustworthiness and his goodness supremely in Jesus Christ. And the things we cannot know, we will have to leave unknown. And then, learn to see God. A long time ago in the 18th century, a philosopher, David Hume, argued that when you look at nature, actually you could as easily conclude that it speaks of a, um, a capricious, vicious God as animals kill each other and uh, mass extinctions happened and so on. And in one sense, at a logical level, you could see that, and yet again and again and again, the common, ordinary people, when they look at nature, they see something beautiful, something glorious, something majestic, something extraordinary. Alistair McGrath, in his book, The Twilight of Atheism, has made the case that actually atheism only thrives when there is a strong reaction against a defective church, by and large. Put people into a neutral environment where they but they haven't got a church to protest about. And they naturally gravitate towards a belief in God. The heavens shout it. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins has made himself so obnoxious, I've started to see in conversations people saying, well, I used to be more or less an atheist, but I'm not now. couldn't be like Richard Dawkins. Albert Einstein once went to hear Yehudi Menuhin playing his violin at the end of the concert, rushed up to Menuhin and said to have embraced him and said, now I know there is a God in heaven. Somehow there is so much beauty in this world, so much goodness in this world, it speaks of the living God. The Bible encourages us to see that, to let scripture refine that and shape that and to let that knowledge of God that comes to us in that way be profoundly therapeutic to us. Next week, we're going to see how actually, if Job had seen Jesus, 
he would have seen even more and been even more stunned and enthralled and helped. But this week we're going to stop at verses 5 and 6 of Job 42. You said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. in this half hour your eyes have seen God and let me call you with me to come to him in repentance